Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Two days after Christmas in 1951, Imogene Blassingame discreetly checked into a downtown Memphis hotel. She took the elevator upstairs to the fourth floor, found her room, closed the door, and there waiting on her was a man. We still don't really know what happened, but beyond the fact Imogene was found dead, bled out on the bathroom floor just a couple of days later. The man she met wasn't there for sex. He was there to perform an illegal abortion, one that went terribly wrong and ended in her untimely death at just the age of 27. Imogene was my grandmother. She died when my mom was four years old. The leaked Supreme Court abortion briefing hinting that Roe v. Wade will be overturned has sparked a vicious public conversation about abortion and women's rights. It seems everyone suddenly has an opinion, and for most of us, this conversation isn't political. It's also deeply personal. Hi, I'm Gary Allen. I'm the co-host of Holy Heretics Podcast, and what I would love to do today is have a thoughtful, nuanced, maybe even intelligent conversation about the pro-life and pro-choice movements and how the world needs potentially a better way to consider this uh, this difficult conversation. And I want to say right off the bat that the last thing the world needs is another cisgender white dude telling women what they can and can't do with their bodies. And more broadly, the last thing America needs right now is a bunch of white evangelicals trying to conform the world into their own image. And so what I want to do is create a space to elevate the voices of women Uh, to share their thoughts, their concerns, their struggles with this difficult issue, and potentially provide a way of seeing this that moves beyond some of the dualism of having to choose a hard line between being, quote, pro-life or pro-choice. Because proponents on either side of the argument tend to reduce their arguments to overly simplistic solutions. Pro-lifers accuse pro-choicers of being murderers, Pro-choicers accuse pro-lifers of being ignorant, hypocritical, misogynistic woman-haters. Well, okay, that that part might be true. But anyone who tells you that abortion is a clear-cut, simple, either-or choice is either lying to you, or they're trying to sell you something, or they're just trying to raise money, which evangelicals have been doing around this issue for the last 30 or 40 years. Because like most things, abortion rights and the act of terminating a pregnancy is incredibly complex, it's confusing, and it's also interconnected with our own personal experience, economic factors, social status, racial status, healthcare concerns, political biases, and then our own faith journey, all intersecting into one extremely controversial conversation. So how do we in the deconstruction community, who are also members of the global and historical community of Christ followers, how do we understand and make sense of the issue 
because even Christians the world over are bitterly divided on the issue. Pro-life advocates appeal to their faith to protect life, while pro-choice Christians appeal to their faith to protect the rights and dignity of women to have full autonomy over their bodies. For pro-lifers, this is an easy decision. It's a no-brainer for them. But for pro-choicers, it's an equally easy decision because they are about freeing women from the oppressive social and political conditions and constructs brought on by living in a culture run by patriarchy. And regardless of what you've been told, there truly is no universal consensus in even our own faith traditions when it comes to abortion. Unitarian Universalists, for instance, have the highest level of support for abortion rights among all denominations, with 90% saying abortion should be legal. That's according to a Pew Research study. And Jewish Rabbi Mara Nathan recently preached a sermon titled, The Right to Choose is a Jewish Value. In it, she said, Judaism has always been pro-choice, pro-free will. Rabbi Dania Rutenberg writes, We as the Jewish community support abortion justice not despite our religious values, but because of them. The United Church of Christ, which is a mainline Protestant denomination, has released statements and passed resolutions supporting abortion rights since 1970. And by introducing the concept of reproductive justice, black feminists reframed abortion within the broader context of a whole lot of moral issues related to reproduction and women's bodies and sexuality, including raising children and dealing with domestic violence. That, according to Reverend Rebecca Todd Peters, a professor of religious studies at Elon University in North Carolina. So no matter where you are on the theological spectrum, You're going to have to come to terms with the fact that the body of Christ has varying and differing opinions on the notion of abortion. So my question to you is, what what do you believe and why do you believe it? How does your faith journey and your path and your view of humanity impact your understanding of abortion and female rights? What does following Jesus have to do with it? And where did all of this fervor come from? And what is motivating, in particular, white evangelicals to overturn Roe v. Wade? To help answer these and so many other questions all of us have, what I'd like to do is start by examining the historical foundations of the pro-life movement. Then I want to jump into scripture because that's one of the great things evangelicals love to do is quote the Bible at all of us concerning abortion and same sex and all the other issues. I also want to talk about the significance and motivating factors for overturning Roe v. Wade and then take a prophetic look at what comes next. And hopefully, we will end by offering a way forward through the polarizing, demonizing conversation on this topic. Or I'll I'll just piss everyone off in the process and nobody will listen to the show again. So it is with great fear and trepidation that we even have this conversation. Um... Because it is so complex. So to start, let's look at the history behind the religious rights' sudden fetish on abortion. Because like no other single issue, overturning Roe v. Wade has been the defining political posture for the religious right and thereby for white evangelicals for decades. But that's not always been the case. According to race and religious historian Jamar Tisby, abortion wasn't even an issue for evangelicals until the late 1970s. 
Initially, the Christian response to Roe v. Wade was mixed. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on abortion that called upon Southern Baptists to, quote, to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. All right, that's the Southern Baptist in 1971. W.A. Criswell, the pastor of the largest SBC congregation, stated right after the Roe v. Wade decision that, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. Adding to that, a poll in 1970 discovered that 70% of Southern Baptist pastors, quote, supported abortion. And even James Dobson, yes, that James Dobson of Focus on the Family, who later became an implacable foe of abortion, acknowledged after the Roe decision that the Bible was silent on the matter and that it was plausible for an evangelical to hold that, quote from Dobson, a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. Full stop. I want to read that again because this is James Dobson saying it is plausible for an evangelical to hold that a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. Even today's views on abortion remain relatively the same as they have been for decades. About 59% of Americans believe it should be legal in all or most cases. Conversely, roughly 39% of Americans want it to be illegal in all or most cases. And opposition is strongest among white evangelicals. About 77% of white evangelicals still oppose abortion today in nearly all cases. So what has changed? Why has abortion, which used to be sort of an add-on to ideology in the late 70s, now suddenly become a rabid fetish and obsession for evangelicals? And more importantly, why did the religious right become a political lobby for the Republican Party? And what does the genesis of right-wing politics have to do with the current conversation about abortion? Well, at this point, nobody should be surprised that the motivating factor for white evangelicals to become involved politically was not abortion. It was racism and in particular segregation. So if anyone wants to say that evangelicals have always been pro-life, that, that is just categorically incorrect. White evangelicalism began the process of pursuing abortion rights as a political alternative to losing the battle against segregation. And I truly believe that white evangelicalism then and white evangelicalism now is a white supremacist project because there is a historical straight line between segregation and the anti-abortion movement, between the evangelical failure to control culture through segregation and their now desire to find another political pawn to rally the churches in order to maintain cultural and racial hegemony. So what's the evidence? Well, historian Randall Balmer explains that conservative power brokers originally came together as a political force to combat what they perceived as an attack by the IRS and the federal government on Protestant Christian schools. 
the particular case that got the right-wing evangelical movement started was the attempt on the part of the Internal Revenue Service to rescind the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of its racially discriminatory policies. At the time, you may not know this, but at the time, Bob Jones was overtly racist. They banned interracial dating, a rule that remained in effect on campus until 2000. Bob Jones III, who served as president from 1971 to 2005, stated in an interview, there are three basic races, Oriental, Caucasian, and Negroid. At Bob Jones University, everybody dates within those basic three races. And anyone involved in an interracial relationship or those who promoted such things as pairings were expelled. The IRS didn't like this, and they went after them. With the Civil Rights Act and the IRS's newly adopted policies, what that meant was that Bob Jones University's stance on interracial dating placed the university in violation of racial discrimination laws. The IRS actually went forward and revoked the school's tax-exempt status in 1976. And why, you know, you're probably asking me at this point, okay, why are you giving me a history lesson on the IRS on racial segregation in Bob Jones University? Well, because this was the tipping point toward the abortion issue for evangelicals. Knowing they were on the losing end of a cultural and political conversation, evangelicals needed something to bring them together under one political umbrella. If it wasn't going to be segregation because they couldn't win with that anymore, then what would it be? Well, during a conference call with Jerry Falwell and other prominent evangelicals strategizing about how to retain their tax exemptions, as well as how to secure political power, someone suggested they might have the makings of a political movement and wondered what other issues would work for them. Several suggestions followed, and then a voice on the telephone line said, how about abortion? And in that instant, the pro-life movement was born. And here's the thing. The, the political genius of the religious rights sneaky embrace of abortion as a political issue is that it allowed white evangelical leaders to camouflage the real origins of their political movement, which was the defense of racial segregation in evangelical institutions. So, as I said earlier, if any one of your friends or family or your conservative <laughs> parents tries to convince you that being anti-abortion is a universal Christian perspective, they are categorically denying and covering up the real reasons why evangelicals took up this fight. The fight to overturn Roe v. Wade has always been about power, and it's always been about cultural domination, and it is rooted in racism. This has never been about saving babies. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And if the historical origins of the pro-life movement among evangelicals is shady at best, then what about the Bible? What about the Bible verses and the biblical authority evangelicals use to defend and justify their ardent stances on abortion? And I, I think this is a question all of us need to ask. If we are followers of Jesus, then what do our sacred texts have to say about the issue. For starters, the Bible contains zero verses about abortion. That's zero as in zero. The Bible offers no direct word or command about abortion whatsoever. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible hasn't been appealed to to prove both sides of the argument. For instance, 
advocates for abortion or for pro-choice in our modern vernacular cite Exodus 21, 22 through 25 in support of their contention that a fetus is not a person. So this is in the Bible. It's in Exodus. And here's what we read. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judge determines. Now, although this passage doesn't directly deal with abortion, it clearly implies that the loss of a fetus is not equivalent to the loss of a human life. If the woman would have died, for instance, then the crime would have been treated like any other case of murder, i.e. an eye for an eye. But in this case, the death of a fetus is seen as a lesser offense in the Jewish canon with only a monetary payment required for restitution. Now, this makes a critical distinction between a fetus and a human person, one that we see um, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament. However, before we kind of jump all in on one side of this, I do uh, need to offer the alternative, the alternative understanding and translation of this text. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it actually puts this text and this story from a different slant. According to its rendering, the determining factor for liability is not whether or not the woman suffers injury, but whether the miscarried child is, quote, formed. That is, whether the fetus is sufficiently developed to bear the appearance of human form. So, this kind of cuts both ways, right? It gives the unborn form child in the womb personhood status while denying personhood status to the unformed fetus in the womb. So there does seem like even in ancient Israel, there was a critical conversation about when this unborn child becomes human. And I will not get into that biologically. I will not get into that theologically because I am not suited to have that conversation. That That's a conversation that you might want to take up elsewhere. However, it's here. It's here in the Old Testament where they're even arguing this. And so, again, this brings up modern questions about when life begins and when the fetus actually becomes a human being. Questions that I'm not going to answer, as I said, but ones that come up here in the Old Testament. Another fascinating verse that appeals to abortion rights, though it's, again, not direct, is found in Numbers 5, where we find a story of a woman who is being accused by her husband of infidelity. And in Numbers 5, we read, Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, By the way, it's always a woman being put under oath, like men are never being, anyways. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But, there's always a big but, but, the priest goes on, if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse into your body so that your abdomen swells and your womb miscarries. I don't remember reading that in BBS or in Bible study. 
But here, again, we have not a direct justification for abortion, but definitely a situation where even a priest is acting under certain circumstances to cause a a direct miscarriage. What does that verse mean? Again, not a theologian, but it's in there, and it does bring up the whole question that We've been told forever that the Bible is so universally pro-life. Well, these verses bring that into question. Now, on the other side of the equation, just to be fair, evangelicals love to quote Psalm 139, and you've probably seen this verse taken out of context and slapped on billboards all over the Bible Belt, but it says, For it was you who formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And it's a beautiful, poetic, non-scientific treatise non-propositional statement about personhood, but it does note that God knows us, that God formed us, that God is the creator and author of life. And I will say that it begs the question of if life itself is even ours to take, and when can we take life? And I think that if we're answering yes to that, then we, we truly do bear a heavy burden to wrestle with and and make sense of our ability to end life, no matter what stage it is at, because we are not the inventors of that life. We are not the creators of that life. We are simply stewarding the life and the lives that we have been given. Other verses throughout both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament refer to pregnancy and birth as gifts or blessings, and, and we cannot deny that. Nowhere in Scripture do we find pregnancy or childbirth to be an ill omen or bad news. It's, it's always seen as an incredible blessing. However, I think we need to be careful not to completely universalize those thoughts because we live under radically different social and economic realities than the ancient people who saw these children as, as a blessing. For them, children were a blessing because they they could work on the farm. They brought money. They brought um, workers to the family business. But today, children are an incredible financial burden. I do, however, want to point out one ancient Christian text that explicitly discusses abortion. It's found in the Didache, which is translated to be teaching. And it's the short name of a Christian manual compiled before 300 AD. So, really early on in the story, early on before Constantine. And the full title is The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And some Christians thought that Didache was inspired um, and, and should be in the Bible, but the church rejected it when making the final decision about which books to include in the New Testament. So this is an ancient compilation of instructions for Christian communities. And one of the instructions reads, You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill one who has been born. That's dedicated to to the epistle of Barnabas. Now, coinciding with this instruction, we also must admit that almost universally from a historical perspective, though Christians now and, and throughout the ages have potentially disagreed about this conversation, there have been overarching agreement that, that would lead the Christian community far more toward being, quote, pro-life than they are pro-choice. And this is, again, uh, I think a text that needs to be wrestled with if you find yourself on the other side of the equation. 
you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill one who has been born. That was basic instruction for the early Christian community. And if we are going to disagree with that, then I think we do so with uh, a great sense of concern, a great sense of research, and truly wrestling with what it means to go against that ancient creed. I want to make one last appeal to Scripture before moving on to some of the ethical issues. In Acts 2, we get a glimpse of what the early church community looked like after patterning their lives after the life and ministry of Jesus. And, and we read, Now the whole group of those who believed was of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This early Christian commune, these early Christian communities scattered all over the Greco-Roman world sound utterly Marxist. And I bring up this story and the history of the early church for a, for a reason, because if modern Christians, and, and I'm looking at you, white evangelicals, if you really want to limit abortions, then instead of trying to enforce morality, choose sacrifice. Instead of trying to coerce the world into seeing and, be, and believing the way you are, well, serve the world. Instead of passing laws to limit the rights of women, put your money where your mouth is and be like the early church. Because I think about the billions of dollars that has been spent over the last 40 years on political power by Christians. And I can only imagine how those billions of dollars could have been better used to serve the poor, to model the way of the ancient church, to put those funds toward at-risk women and childcare and education and poverty and domestic abuse. But no, that's not where evangelicals have focused their efforts. This has never been about serving babies. It's certainly never been about serving women. It's been about control. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Because the primary research around why individuals have abortions comes all the way back, on the most part, to financial reasons. 1,200 women in 2004 discussed why they had chosen to have an abortion. 74% of those 1,200 women cited that having a child would interfere with their education and their work and their ability to care for other dependents. 74% also said that they simply couldn't afford a baby, and another 73% on a different question said part of the reason why they chose an abortion was they did not want to be a single mother. They didn't want to face having a child by themselves. And unfortunately, the financial issues that help curb abortion are the very things that evangelicals and Republicans consistently fail to support. In a recent interview with the New York Times, former pro-life pastor Christy Berghoff said, I started to realize that the things that's actually going to bring down this abortion rate is all the things that my party, the Republicans, were working against. Affordable access to health care, access to contraceptions, expanded availability of child care, and better educational opportunities for women. And instead of caring for women, the current pro-life movement really only cares for the unborn because the unborn are easy things to dedicate your political angst toward. 
And they also require, well, nothing of us. According to Methodist pastor David Barnhart, he writes, the unborn are a convenient group of people to advocate for. They never make demands of you. They are morally uncomplicated, unlike the incarcerated or addicted or the chronically poor. The unborn don't resent your condescension or complain that you're not politically correct. Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money or education or child care. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all that racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. The unborn allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they are born, well, you can forget them because they cease to be unborn. You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, and privilege without reimagining social structures, apologizing, or making reparations to anyone. The unborn, in short, are the perfect people to love if you want to claim you love Jesus, but actually dislike people who breathe. Prisoners, immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, all of these people are specifically mentioned in the Bible, and they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. But instead, imagine living in a world where the church was the church, where at-risk women knew they had a safe place to go for community, for healing, for mental health, for economic sustainability. And that place would then welcome her as a full, equal member of the community. This is what it would look like for the church to actually truly be pro-life. As Sister Joan Chittister famously wrote, I do not believe that just because you're opposed to abortion, that makes you pro-life. In fact, I think in many cases, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. And why would we think that you don't? Well, because you don't want any tax money to go there. That's not pro-life, that's pro-birth. She goes on to say, we need a much broader conversation on what the morality of pro-life actually is. Because if evangelicals were pro-life, I guarantee you they would put bans on guns and not bans on women's bodies. Which really begs the question, what has all of this been about anyways over the last 40 years? What has the pro-life movement been lobbying for? And have they even reduced abortions through the billions of dollars that they have thrown through the pursuit of political power? Well, historians disagree over whether or not abortion actually goes down or, or just stays down at the same rate if and when it becomes illegal because these stats are somewhat inconclusive. However, what we do know that changes when abortion is banned is that more women die. There is a 21% increase in maternity-related mortality rates when abortion is banned. Just like my grandmother Imogene, women die when abortion is illegal. That's not pro-life, for Christ's sake. That is not pro-life. Now, what's interesting to note is that abortion rates have been steadily declining in the United States since Roe v. Wade was passed. And abortion rates decline consistently when Democrats are in power, which is very interesting when we consider the pro-life movement has been waged by Republicans and white conservative evangelicals. In fact, 
When President Obama passed universal health care, U.S. rates of abortion plummeted. And according to an article by NBC News, abortion rates have fallen over the past 25 years, even as more countries have made the procedure legal and easier to get. This is a very uncomfortable thing that pro-lifers don't want to talk about. The fact that abortion rates have been falling and falling and falling, and they aren't linked to banning it. They are linked to other social services that eliminate the need or the desire to get an abortion. Even a study by the Guttmaker Institute revealed that countries with the most restrictive abortion laws also have the highest rates of abortion. And the report also found that, not surprisingly, easier access to birth control drives down abortion rates. Yes, I'm <laughs> shocker, but it's true. And by the way, just to kind of put some stats around this from a global perspective, Switzerland has the lowest abortion rate among countries being assessed at a rate of five per 1,000 women. The United States is higher at 13 abortions per 1,000 women, about the same as uh, the UK. But let's circle back a little bit to that evangelical motivation for banning abortion and overturning Roe v. Wade. If you're paying attention, and this has been going on since pre-Trump, evangelicals are on a quest. They are on a quest to bring about the kingdom of God, even if they have to sleep with Satan to do so. This movement, from its beginning, is based on power. It's based on conquest. It's based on control. It's based on colonization. And it's even baked into the language that many of us grew up using as former evangelicals. Remember the whole work, we're, we're going to overcome the world, onward Christian soldiers, God is in control, we're going to go win converts. All of that language is incredibly imperialistic and it's dominator language. And this pro-life movement has been a very strategic part of the culture war. It's about winning. It's about defeating the enemies who just happen to be Democrats and liberals. It's about owning the, the libs, no matter how Machiavellian, that Christians need to become in order to do so. And, and critical to the evangelical attempt to take over culture, not serve it, but take over it, is this long game mentality that begins to see babies as products or future combatants in this culture war. For decades, the motto of Parents Magazine ran, the future of the race marches forward on the feet of little children. For evangelicals, a pregnancy is a, a small component or a tactic within the larger culture war to create and produce people that are will outnumber the secular world. Because again, this is about winning. It's about conquering. It's about overcoming. And we witness this in the Quiverfield movement. It's a group of conservative Christians who forego birth control in the belief that women should bear as many children as God sees fit because that is the way they win. It's by having babies and then indoctrinating those babies into evangelical fundamentalism. Very handmaiden's tale. And here's the scary part for those outsiders, those individuals that evangelicals have been targeting with their wrath. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, this culture war win would just be the beginning of a long line of rights infringements by evangelicals. 
This is just the beginning. According to New York University law professor Melissa Murray, there is an incredible fear that overturning same-sex marriage and trans rights are next. This leaked brief was littered with casual references to other precedents in other court cases. One was a 2003 Lawrence versus Texas, which was a decision to decriminalize same-sex sodomy. Another mention in the leak was Obergfell versus Hodges, a 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage. Griswold in Connecticut, a 1965 decision was mentioned that legalized contraceptive use. And Loving versus Virginia in 1967 was also mentioned in the league, and that decision was legalizing interracial marriage. So here, here you have hints that interracial marriage contraceptive use, same-sex marriage, and other issues around trans rights will be overturned if Roe v. Wade is also overturned. It's, it's quite scary for, for anyone who has lived with a, uh, a life of being denied rights, who's now been given those rights and have lived into those rights and are looking back over their shoulder thinking, uh, is my marriage going to be legal now? Uh, will this right be taken away from me? And I think the question remains, how far will evangelicals go to instill their fundamentalist ideology around sex and gender and women's rights and trans rights? For example, right now, currently in Louisiana, there is a law before the state legislature to criminalize IUDs, and there are plans on charging women with murder for using them. In Texas, GOP lawmakers introduced a bill to allow the death penalty for women who have abortions. Very pro-life, right? And again, this this goes back to the hypocrisy. This is not a pro-life movement. This is a movement based on controlling women's bodies. And what better way to control them than to kill them? The Senate, the United States Senate, just blocked a bill that would have codified Roe v. Wade in Missouri. A Republican official recently unveiled a proposal that would allow random citizens to sue anyone who helps a Missouri resident obtain an out-of-state abortion. We are now providing vigilantes that will make money through mercenary activity for reporting anyone who has an out-of-state abortion. And in Texas, it was just reported yesterday that some GOP legislatures also want to approve measures that would prevent pregnant Texans from seeking legal abortions in other states. So this is really far-reaching. It's not just, well, okay, if I live in Texas and I can't get one there, I get to fly to California. No, they're going to track you down there as well. It's incredible governmental overreach. This is authoritarian regime type mentality. And this is only one issue that evangelical Republicans, and let's be honest, they're the same, uh, have launched over the last several years in their continuing fight over the culture war. They are banning books. They're suing Disney. They're putting bounties on Good Samaritans. They are in an all-out fight to keep American school children from reading real American history through denouncing CRT. And basically, they are against anything and everything that would expose this movement for what it is, which is a white Christian nationalistic movement. Laura Ellis recently published Why I'm a Pro-Choice Christian at Baptist Global News. And she writes, 
In the fallout of this forthcoming Supreme Court decision, states will create restrictions and bans without federal oversight. Experts estimate that 26 states will impose abortion bans. Women in blue states and rich white women in red states will continue to have access to abortions. However, impoverished women living in red states will struggle to afford and find reproductive health care. This should come as no surprise, she goes on to say, but overturning Roe will only exacerbate existing inequities as bans and restrictions disproportionately affect women of color, women in poverty, young women, and women in rural areas who have more difficulty accessing already limited medical facilities. And ultimately, for me, all of this kind of swims around this larger question of do we really want the government, any government, to dictate medical advice to women and to have control over what anyone, whether we agree or disagree, does with their body? Do we really want to allow that kind of oversight and overreach? And why isn't there an equal gender limit on men? Why are women consistently targeted for rights deprivations? Well, one of the answers to that is because our government, in particular here in the United States and mostly around the world, is made up primarily of men. And for us, it's doubly worse. It's made up primarily of rich, white, old men. During Brett Kavanaugh's Senate confirmation hearing, Senator Kamala Harris asked him, can you think of any laws that give the government power to make decisions about the male body? Judge Kavanaugh replied, um, I'm not aware. I'm not thinking of any right now, Senator. The ability to control one's body is intrinsic to controlling one's life. And this is true along the entire reproductive continuum from sex to abortion to delivery. In her 1993 confirmation hearing to join the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg explained this to the Senate. The decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It is a decision she must make for herself. When governments control that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own actions. And throughout the history of civilization, we have seen governments and empires and nations control women's bodies and by extension control women. It's been a prevalent theme since the beginning of, of time, it seems like, and it's built into the very systems and structures of Western society. Here in the United States, for example, rape was initially deemed a property crime against the victim's father. And as property themselves, women couldn't own property under the common law principle of coverture. And states only gradually granted property ownership to married women around 1943. To keep women in their place and thus out of power, American laws long forbade women from full societal participation. For instance, in 1948, the Supreme Court affirmed women couldn't be, quote, big city bartenders unless their father or husband owned the establishment. And only in 1973 could women serve on a jury in all 50 states. Let me repeat that. Only in 1973 could women serve on a jury in all 50 states. And until 1974, women without their husband's permission could be refused credit cards. <laughs> 
it's insane when you think about it. CNN's Kirsten Powers, uh, she was a guest on our show. She she tweeted last week, overturning Roe v. Wade is not just about abortion. It's about equality writ large. Are women full citizens with rights or not? Women cannot be truly equal if they don't have control over their own bodies and their own reproductive choices, which sort of feels like the point here, she goes on to say. All right, so I've gotten a little bit wound up here. Um, and I, I want to close by looking at another issue. But before we get there, kind of look back at what we've done. We've discussed the historical impetus for the pro-life movement. We talked about how racial segregation was the beginning linchpin for this political right-wing movement that has now overtaken the entire Republican Party. We also moved from there to look at the scriptural evidence or lack thereof for forming a, quote, biblical opinion about abortion. We looked at extra biblical sources that actually did show that the early Christian community was against abortion. And we've peeked into the future to see how this potential rights limitation would provide a slippery slope for even more curvatures of women's rights through this onslaught of of patriarchy and Christian nationalism. So I want to close with just some personal thoughts to to help navigate this. At the beginning, I said I would try not to do that very much because as as a white male with privilege, I understand that that this is not my conversation. Um, It doesn't affect me personally, and yet I also want to use my voice to center women's stories, to center women's opinions, to center the conversation around more than just picking and choosing between what I believe are kind of two false dichotomies. And so what I'm learning as I am trying to formulate my own understanding of this issue is it is okay if you have a non-dual reaction to abortion. It is okay if you have a non-dual reaction to abortion. And by that, I mean you and I, if you choose to believe this, you can personally believe abortion is wrong for you and something that you would just never participate in and still support abortion rights for others. You can believe it's wrong. You can never participate in it. And you can still say, but I believe that this is a right that needs to be open and available for people who would choose that. If you believe abortion is wrong, that's your moral choice. And and I'm sure you got there in a very uh, faithful way. And we don't want to deny that. But if you believe it's wrong, then don't have one. In the same way, if you believe same-sex marriage is wrong, well, then don't marry a gay person. But that doesn't necessarily give you or I, no matter what we think about this, the right to make ethical decisions for someone else. I really believe that you can be pro-life as well as pro-choice. I can believe abortion is not something that I would participate in while also allowing other human beings the right to make their own choices and decisions about their own body. And you can be a Christian and follow the largely Christian historical context around abortion and choose not to ever have one while still supporting women's rights. And one one final thing to consider, um, just to balance out the scales a bit, because I know I've been 
I know I've come down pretty hard on the hypocrisy of the pro-life crowd and on the hypocrisy of the pro-life movement. But as a follower of Jesus, I, I do believe it is our duty to do no harm. And what I mean by that is to be nonviolent, to protect the weak, to honor life, and to care for the marginalized. And this attribute, as we all know, was a praxis and a foundational element to Jesus's life and work. And he continually came to the aid of the hurting, of the sick, of the wounded, of the outcast, of the marginalized, of the alien, and in particular women. If you still read your Bible, just pause at all the times Jesus is helping a woman. And she's typically a woman who has been disenfranchised, who is economically um, scared, who has been kicked out of her home or kicked out of the community, and he's consistently coming to their aid. So for me, it's easy to apply this Jesus ethic of nonviolence and doing no harm to the victims of sexual abuse and sexual violence, to women in poverty to women struggling to put food on a single mom's table, to balance work and childcare, to fight with their former lover, to just get a penance of childcare uh, and, and, and financial help. And I will say that it could very well be that for some women, adding one more mouth to feed is harm. Or in more traumatic situations, is it really a Christian ethic to force a 12-year-old girl to have her rapist baby? What about a child who is raped by her father who will now be forced to have his kid because five justices said so? Is that Christ-like? Would we find Jesus doing the same? Is it Christ-like to punish the poor, to limit their ability to access health care? Or... And I know this is going to be a, a fairly shocking statement to some people, but can abortion in some situations be the ethical choice, especially where the life of the mother is in jeopardy or about the long-term emotional and behavioral health issues of forcing a woman to bear an attacker's child? Is it not, quote, biblical to believe that women need to be protected as well. These are difficult conversations and ones that I, I said I don't have answers to. I, I don't think it's my place to have the answers. On the flip side, as, as we look at the, the pro-life movement, one thing to consider before we go, is it ever our right as creatures to take life? Is harm being done to the unborn, no matter at what stage or age the pregnancy ends? And do we get to take that life? And I don't ask that to, to shame anyone or to blame anyone or condemn anyone for anything you have done in the past. I am asking that question of myself because I want to feel the weight of this issue. And I want to try and see how, gosh, some decisions just cause harm. And the question is, how much harm are we causing? Because if you really want to wrestle with this issue, then I think we have to deal with and come to conclusions about what it means 
for us to be stewards of life and not creators of it? And can we as stewards ever end a life? That, that's a question that I truly struggle with. As Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas writes, the Christian prohibition against taking life rests not on the assumption that human life has overriding value, but on the conviction that it is not ours to take. The Christian prohibition of abortion derives not from any assumption of the inherent value of life, but rather from the understanding that as God's creatures, we have no basis to claim sovereignty over life. He goes on to say, the Christian respect for life is first of all a statement, not about life, but about God. And thankfully, we as Christians have the freedom to look at our ancient stories, to look at our sacred texts, to look at the life of Jesus and come to this conclusion. And and we need the patience and the freedom to allow people to come to radically different conclusions than we do. The one cause I would say is, as a Christian, I truly believe that I do not have the right to force my religious beliefs on others, no matter how strong those convictions are. So hopefully this has been a conversation that allows you to wrestle with this issue and come to your own conclusions. And at some point, begin asking yourself, what do I really believe about this and why do I believe it? And maybe you will find yourself carving out a third way, a third way of thinking about the issue that radically transcends the dichotomy of pro-life and pro-choice. To quote Pastor Christy Berghoff, she says, At the risk of angering my friends who lean progressive, I will admit I personally consider myself broadly pro-life. And at the risk of confounding most friends who lean conservative, the evidence does not reveal that the most effective way to reduce abortion in this country is to simply overturn Roe v. Wade but rather to examine who is having abortions and why and work at those things. No matter where you find yourself on this spectrum of pro-life or pro-choice, I think most people want to decrease unwanted pregnancies and they want to decrease abortion. The question is how. And I also think many of us want to ensure the lives of women are protected and given full dignity under the law. I think we can do both without encroaching on everyone else. So if you really want to do both to support women and decrease abortions, then may we all work to to turn this conversation into action, to turn this conversation into providing access to birth control and more comprehensive sex education, to help create universal reproductive health care, to work to overhaul foster care and adoption systems, to establish paid maternity and paternity leave, to subsidize universal child care, and then focus dollars not on lobbying for a Supreme Court justice, but on ending sexual violence while also working to eliminate poverty and patriarchy, these systems of oppression that lead to unwanted pregnancies. So I'm going to stop there because I, I feel like I'm, I will begin preaching, and I know that's <laughs> not what we do here at Holy Heretics. This is a safe space for 
all of us to wrestle with these issues, to come to our own conclusions. And we just simply want to be with you on the journey. I hope you will never hear us tell you what to believe and what to do. That's not our role. Uh, That's not my role. It's not Kelly's role. It wasn't Melanie's role. We are here to simply provide a space for you to dialogue about these things and to come to your own conclusions and then go and do the work to make the world a better place. So I'm curious. I would love to know what your thoughts are after listening to this. We would love to hear from you. We want to learn from you. And I also know we need to come together to elevate women's voices. And I hope in a small way that we've been able to do that today by sharing some of the wisdom of so many female pastors and priests and politicians and media professionals who are working on the front lines to reduce abortions as well as to protect women's rights. I often wonder if abortion would have been legal in 1951 if my grandmother would still be alive. Because I think she deserved to grow old. I think she deserved to watch her daughter have children and those children have children. I know she deserved a better story than being found on the floor of a a hotel, left abandoned, bleeding out, and then to be dismissed and buried in this southern secret for her scandal. She was a human being, just like you just like me. She had dignity. And if she had been given equal and full human rights, she might still be with us today. So thank you for joining us as we talk about this deeply personal, deeply controversial um, conversation that's, that's not going away. And I pray that you will use your voice and your finances to fight for life, to fight for women's rights, and to fight for a world where everyone feels like they have full human dignity before the law, before the church, and before one another as we all go forth to make the world safe for everyone. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.